Hey, food eaters. Welcome back to the Food Labels Revealed podcast. This is episode number 71. I am your host, Mel Weinstein, the self-professed, self-effacing prophet of processed foods. Today, I bring you a different kind of program. Different in the sense that I'll be winging it for the most part. Usually, uh, when putting together a podcast, I select a topic, do some research, sometimes considerable research, then write up a script and perform the recording. And I spend lots of time editing the recording and then prepare the recording to upload to podcast, the hosting website. Right now, I'm on vacation in Florida, far away from my recording studio, so there is no regular script, just some notes. Also, there is no audio editing program. So you'll hear me, our natural, with hesitations, hems and haws, nasal sounds and tongue clicks, plus whatever noises, and there'll be a bunch of them, uh, coming from the background. And, of course, there's no music, which you may have noticed when you first started the, uh, the episode. I hope that's okay with you because I'm really into today's topic entitled Can Ultra-Processed Foods Kill You? A few episodes ago I mentioned that I'm working on a book about food ingredients and fast foods. One of the last chapters is devoted to the scientific literature investigating apparent health issues associated with diets that are high in the consumption of ultra-processed foods. Now, I've come across a significant amount of literature on that subject, but today I want to direct your attention to a phenomenal research project out of France called the Nutrinet Santé Cohort. It's one of the largest nutritional studies ever conducted, and I'm confident will be referred to for many years to come as the original and loudest alarm as regards the industrial as regards the industrialization of our food system. Now, this was a massive study in France covering 10 years of data collected over the period 2009 to 2018. When I first saw a posting about this research back in 2018, I was shocked. I didn't realize that there were some major research projects in other countries trying to link the eating of industrial food with negative health consequences. Yes, we've all heard for years that eating junk food could be bad for us, but here are some significant, credible data to support that idea. Rather than just hearsay or single-case reports, such as in the uh, film by uh, Spurlock, I think his name was, called Supersize Me. Starting in 2018... The project has spawned several scientific papers focusing on different health issues. Now, I posted about the 2018 paper at the FLR Facebook page and also devoted a part of a podcast to it a few years ago, 
But today I want to go into some detail about a specific paper from that project. In May 2019, the British Journal of Medicine published an article entitled Ultra-Processed Food Intake and Risk of Cardiovascular Disease Prospective Cohort Study. Now that's a pretty long title and we'll delve into it a little bit here shortly. Uh, so I'm going to kind of cover this article in a little bit of, of detail. Uh, if, you're, if you've ever looked at scientific uh, articles published in the scientific literature uh, and you're not trained as a scientist, you will find these oftentimes pretty difficult to read for several reasons. Uh, one being is that scientists kind of have their own language and terminology uh, when it comes to reporting on their research and that can be foreign to people and, and difficult to understand. And then secondly, there's often uh, a great deal of statistics and mathematics uh, and probability included in the study. And that takes some special training and understanding as well to, to figure out what that's all about. So, uh, of course, I'm not going to get into that, and I really don't want to because I'm not a statistician, and I, have to, I struggle with it as well. But I want to cover uh, some of the highlights uh, of, of this study and kind of uh, go through kind of how it was set up and how the conclusions were drawn and some of the limitations or biases uh, associated with it. So first of all, let's uh, dissect the first part of the title. Okay, so repeating that, it's an ultra-processed food intake and risk of cardiovascular disease. So the investigators were only focused on the association between diets high in ultra-processed foods. And I'm going to call those UPFs for short, so I don't have to keep saying that phrase over and over again. So they're interested in looking at diets high in UPFs and heart disease, which is responsible for one-third of all deaths globally. Now, also in the title at the very end, you see the words prospective cohort study. Now, the word cohort simply means a group of people enrolled in a study who share something in common. The phrase prospective cohort refers to a set of individuals being followed over time with respect to some measure of interest that may lead to a specific outcome or result that researchers are curious about. Now, I'm not going to get off on this tangent, but there are all kinds of different types of scientific studies, and this is just one of those examples, and you also could call it an observational study. The Nutrisant study was designed to observe a group of people over a long period of time to determine if there was a measurable relationship between eating a diet high in UPS and the risk 
of developing cardiovascular <laughs> the risk of developing cardiovascular disease or CVD for short. One thing that makes this observational study so impressive is the size of the cohort. There were 105,159 eligible participants in this cohort. Now that's getting close to the population of Peoria, Illinois. The initial, <clears throat> the initial cohort was even larger by about 10,000, but people got ruled out who maybe had a history of CVD or who didn't follow the guidelines of the study, so they got tossed out. Each individual was asked to fill out online a 24-hour dietary survey that listed 3,300 food items. Now, in the first two years of this 10-year study, the researchers just monitored food intake to establish uh, what was called a baseline. Uh, so they just wanted to find out what people were eating in the first two years of the study and how consistent uh, that pattern was. Then, in the last eight years, the participants were monitored for incidents of heart disease and stroke. So next, uh, I want to talk about this questionnaire and, and the baseline data uh, that were collected. Now, there were questionnaires on demographic and lifestyle attributes. So uh, by that is meant they uh, monitored for gender, age, type of job, educational level, number of children, smoking status, their height, their weight, dietary intakes, physical activity, and personal and family health histories. Now, as far as filling out questionnaires, uh, the participants <clears throat> had to complete a series of three non-consecutive validated 24-hour dietary rec rec records at baseline and thereafter every six months and randomly uh, assigned over a two-week period uh, that included two weekdays and one weekend day. You know, that was to, to make sure they gathered data from throughout the week, not just on weekdays or on weekend days. Now, the first two years of data were average per individual, and that served as the baseline dietary intake for that person. Then the surveys were validated against interviews by trained dietitians and through taking of uh, blood for certain markers in blood and also urine. Now all the foods and beverages that these people ate plus their portion sizes were supposedly reported. People who underreported and or had low food intakes got excluded from the study.
So, so in the study, the researchers just tried to include the people who ate kind of a normal caloric diet and who were properly uh, reporting their food intakes. Now, here's, here's an important part. <clears throat> Dietitians categorized foods and beverages into one of four food groups, which were based on the extent and purpose of industrial processing. Now, this system, which was uh, developed by scientists in Brazil, is called the NOVA system. Now, NOVA, it's spelled capital N, capital O, capital V, capital A, is not an acronym, so it doesn't stand for anything. Uh, I think it has to do with, you know, associated with a, an exploding star that gives off a lot of light, and so they're looking at a system that sheds light on uh, the food intakes of people. Anyway, that's my guess. Now, the NOVA classification assigns a group to food products based on how much processing they have been through. So let's go over the four groups. Group number one, it includes unprocessed or minimally processed foods. These are the natural edible parts of plants, animals, fungi, etc. So examples of this would be apples, beef, milk, and mushrooms. Or products that are minimally processed, that involved uh, processes like grinding, fractionating, filtering, roasting, boiling, fermentation, pasturation, refrigeration, freezing, etc. for the purpose uh, to promote preservation, storage, improve taste, texture, etc. Okay, so that's group one, unprocessed or minimally processed foods. Group two, these are processed culinary ingredients. So culinary uh, referring to like food preparation. Uh, products derived from group one used for cooking to prepare fresh dishes like soups, beverages, salads, breads, desserts. Foods that would fall into this category are oils, butter, sugar, and salt. So that's group two. Uh, these are more processed ingredients that are used for cooking purposes. All right, next is group three. These are processed foods. Now, again, uh, we're looking at foods from group one, but they're modified versions of those foods and also foods from group two. And so this category would include bottled vegetables, canned fish, cheeses, freshly made breads. Now, the main purpose of foods in this category is for preservation or to enhance the flavor, taste, and texture of foods. Okay, finally, and most importantly for this study, uh, we get to group four. Okay, group four is the ultra-processed food and beverage products category. Okay, so let's define ultra-processed foods first. Uh, Ultra-processed foods are not modified foods, but formulations made mostly or entirely from substances derived from foods and additives with little, if any, intact 
group 1 foods. These products also include other sources of energy and nutrients not normally used in culinary preparations. Some of these are directly extracted from foods such as casein, lactose, whey, and gluten. Now additives in ultra-processed foods include some also used in processed foods such as preservatives, antioxidants, and stabilizers. Now classes of additives found only underlying the word only in ultra-processed products includes those used to imitate or enhance the sensory qualities of foods or to disguise unpalatable aspects of the final products. So what we're talking about here are additives such as dyes and other colorings, color stabilizers, flavors, flavor enhancers, non-sugar sweeteners, and then there's processing aids such as carbonating, firming, bulking, anti-bulking, defoaming, anti-caking, and glazing agents. And then there are emulsifiers, sequestants, and humectants. If you've listened to my podcast for a while, you probably recognize a lot of those terms because I mention them pretty much over and over again uh, when I'm uh, evaluating uh, a ultra-processed food. Now, the overall purpose of ultra-processing is to create branded, that's important, branded, convenient, meaning durable, ready-to-consume, attractive, which can mean hyper-palatable, which means you know, really, really tastes good, and highly profitable. So the, uh, the ingredients are low-cost, so uh, we have highly profitable food products designed to displace all other food groups. All right, so let's, let's look a uh, little bit at the participants in the study. Um, so they, they took this health questionnaire where they reported any major health events that they had, and there were checkups uh, every three months to determine if there were any significant changes in their health. And then the participants were also invited, not forced, but invited to submit medical records and sometimes medical professionals were contacted for more information about people's personal medical histories. Now this whole study uh, was about uh, trying to make a connection, see if there was a connection between the consumption of uh, ultra-processed foods and heart disease events. So I want to mention what kinds of events the researchers were looking for. So these included stroke, transient ischemic attack, that's a fancy phrase for mini-stroke, myocardial infarction, again a medical term referring to a heart attack, acute coronary syndrome, that means a clot and a coronary artery, and finally indications of uh, procedures such as angioplasty, 
So medical procedures to keep coronary arteries open. Now statistical models were used to assure validity of the data collected and used in the study. Uh, models were adjusted for age and gender as well as BMI, body mass index, physical activity, smoking status, alcohol intake, family history, and educational level to eliminate biases. You know, obviously there are a number of things that will affect the possibility of having uh, heart, heart uh, problems. So, you know, BMI, if you have an exceptionally high BMI and you're overweight or obese or excessively obese, you know, these can <clears throat> also increase the risk of heart conditions. Also, uh, preconditions such as type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, that's an interesting word, <clears throat> simply means elevated lipids in blood. And also there's hypertension, so high blood pressure could, could be an issue. And then finally, uh, hypertriglyceridemia. Probably didn't say that right. Hypertriglyceridemia, which simply means high, high triglycerides or fats in the blood. Okay, so once again... Um, there's all kinds of things that can contribute to heart disease. So the researchers were trying to determine uh, biases as a result of these other conditions. Conditions, and so statistically, they used models to either rule out or rule in the influences of these other conditions on the results of the study. Okay, so having said that, let's talk a little bit about biases and influences, uh, and when these things occur in a scientific study, they're often called confounders. <clears throat> now, the study looked at <clears throat> categories of population. So they were also uh, wanting to know, well, you know, what were the number of men versus the number of women in the study? Uh, what was the, uh, you know, how old were these people? And they kind of had a cutoff point of people less than 45 so it'd be like 18 to 45 versus uh, older people over 45. They also uh, wanted to look at in the uh, in the food intakes what was the consumption of high fat versus low fat foods, and they wanted to look at healthy dietary patterns versus not so healthy, and in terms of activity, they wanted to look at uh, you know who were sedentary and who were physically active. Okay, so going back to the first thing, um, gender, men versus women, uh, by a, a vast uh, number, women were more represented in the study than men. 79% of the participants were women kind of tells you something about people who volunteer for studies like this, that women are more inclined to do that, particularly, I think, uh, if the study relates to health. In terms of the average age of a participant, it was 
43. So it was on the younger side. But the range of ages went from 18 to 73. So I kind of mentioned this before, but you know, to try to rule out biases, uh, there are many sensitivity analyses conducted. For example, uh, they looked at cigarette usage, uh, consumptions of fruits and vegetables, fiber intake, geographic location where these people lived, and even the season of the year when the data was collected. All right, uh, I want to say something about subsets of the cohort. Uh, researchers were interested to know, uh, you know kind of who they were evaluating in this study. So they, they and I think I mentioned this before, they, they wanted to know uh, how many young, young people were in it, you know, who were the current smokers, uh, who were less educated or more educated, they, of course, wanted to know about family history. You know, did the participant have a family history of cardiovascular disease? They wanted to know about the uh, physical activities of the participants, uh, BMIs, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, did they have diets that were high in calories or low in calories? Did they have high or lower intakes of alcohol? fruits, vegetables, fiber, and what was their prevalence of metabolic diseases um, prior or during the study. So here uh, are some of the findings. The mean proportion of UPFs in the diet, okay, now what that means is uh, what percent of the diets for both men and women were high in uh, UPFs. So they, what they found was that uh, for men, 17.6% of the participants had diets significant in UPFs. And for women, it was 17.3%. So those numbers are pretty close between men and women. Now, what were the biggest contributor, contributors uh, to the UPFs? Uh, well, at the top of the list were sugary foods. Not a big surprise. Uh, this was followed by highly processed fruits and vegetables, beverages, starchy foods, cereals, and processed meats and fish. Now, the association with the risk of overall cardiovascular disease was, was statistically significant in all stratums of the population that was investigated. So that include, included the gender, the age, lipid intakes, health dietary patterns, BMI, and physical activity level. So it really didn't matter so much what they found and what, what the differences were in these different categories. Uh, the risk of getting cardio cardiovascular disease was pretty similar. Okay, so here, here's a key piece of information uh, regarding the results of the study. So listen, listen carefully here. So for every 10% increase 
in the percentage of ultra-processed foods in the diet, there was an associated 12%, 13%, and 11% statistically significant increase in the rates of overall cardiovascular, coronary heart, and cerebrovascular disease, respectively. Okay, so that was a mouthful. Okay, so let's kind of simplify things here. So <clears throat> let's say you're in the, in the study as a participant, and you were found that if you had a 10% higher increase of ultra-processed foods compared to the average, then your risk of getting cardiovascular disease was 12% higher. And, or your risk of getting uh, cerebrovascular disease, that is strokes and mini strokes, was 11% higher than the average. So, you know, let's bump that up. Let's say that your intake of ultra-processed foods was 30% higher than the average. So now you multiply the risk by 3, 3 times 10. And so you would have a 36% higher risk of getting cardiovascular disease and a 33% risk of getting cerebrovascular disease. So those were uh, pretty significant findings. On the flip side, the study found a statistically significant lower risk of cardiovascular disease among those participants who ate the greatest amount of unprocessed, minimally processed foods. So that was from group one of the NOVA categories. All right, so let's say talk something about what's, what's causing these risks. And it gets a little dicey here uh, because with an observational study, it gets really hard to figure out what exactly is causing the problems. Okay, but some things we can talk about here. Uh, so participants with low nutritional qualities, which means high sodium, high calories, high fat, high sugar, and low intakes of fiber would be particularly at risk. Then we have sugar-sweetened drinks. Uh, they may lower the trigger for satiety. Okay, so satiety is, just simply means uh, feeling full, knowing when to quit eating. So if people were, were consuming large amounts of sugar-sweetened drinks, uh, they may not realize that they're no longer hungry and they may continue to eat, uh, which would result in increased calorie intake, which, of course, uh, could cause weight gain and potentially becoming obese. Also, at the same time, if you're eating a lot of junky foods, uh, then you're probably also not eating very many fruits and vegetables, which are protective. So, 
another way of looking at this, if, if you have a diet uh, with a lot of UPFs in it, you may be creating deficits in the body where the, these bad foods that you're eating displace the nutrients from good foods from category number one, uh, and therefore you're depriving your body of important nutrients, which can lead then to consequences of bad health, such as cardiovascular disease. Now, after adjusting for nutritional problems, there was still increased risk for cardiovascular disease, which suggested to the researchers that there was something specific about UPS that were causing a higher risk of cardiovascular diseases. So what I'm saying here is, is that it just wasn't that you were excluding a lot of good foods, you know, which would protect your health, um, or that you were uh, smoking or not smoking, or had high physical activity or no physical activity, you know, all these other things that could lead to health problems. Um, they thought that there's something specifically in ultra-processed foods, uh, either the particular ingredients or the combination of ingredients that would trigger cardiovascular disease events. Now the health impact of the cumulative intake of additives, and I stress additives in this podcast quite a bit, this cumulative intake of additives across all ingested foods and potential cocktail or interaction effects remain largely unknown. Okay, so what that means, and this study, and, and really <laughs> I'm not aware of any other studies that can really tease apart uh, what the potential uh, cumulative effects of eating additives are. I mean, we have information about particular additives that may not be good for the body, but as far as I can tell, there aren't really any studies or good studies that that show, okay, if you're routinely congesting dozens, conge routinely ingesting dozens of additives in your diet, whether these have combination effects instead of you know one additive having a bad effect, it now becomes a, an increased effect by all the other additives that are present. Now, as I said, there are some additives that uh, we suspect are known agents of cardiovascular disease. Some of these are, for example, sulfites, monosodium glutamate, of course we know that as MSG, carboxymethylcellulose and polysorbate 80, which are emulsifiers, carrageenan, which is a natural algae thickener, and ace sulfame K, which is, an, <clears throat> which is an artificial sweetener. Now, other things. What about problems that can happen in the preparation of foods, particularly the cooking of foods? It's known that uh, during the heating process of certain foods, that some harmful substances can be created. Uh, one of these is acrylamide, which comes from uh, heating uh, highly starch-based 
foods, you know, such as, you know, uh, breads, chips, crackers, etc. When they are heated up to high temperatures, there are chemical reactions that occur, which can produce a substance called acrylamide. Acrylamide, and that is known to have an adverse effect on uh, someone getting cardiovascular disease. All right, next I want to talk about uh, some of the limitations of the study. I mentioned uh, some of these things already, but really the, the biggie to me is can you trust the data that was used in this study? Because I mentioned early on that people who were participating in the study were told to go online where they filled out surveys, and these surveys had to do with reporting uh, all the different kinds of foods they ate in their diet at different times during the year over many years. And so one could question whether this kind of data collection is accurate or not, because it all involves self-reporting. And we all know that people can have bad memories. And to the worst extent, you know, people can lie, you know, about what they've, what they've eaten, you know, maybe to look good uh, in the study. So these are some, some concerns of this kind of an observational study. However, go back to the very beginning where I talked about the size of the study, 105,000, over 105,000 people were contributing data to the study. This helps to neutralize, you know, by having a high population in the cohort, it helps to neutralize against potential reporting issues. So the, the more people in the cohorts, the less these kinds of errors of reporting are going to have an impact on the final results. All right. This is important as a limitation. Uh, all this study can do, and any study like this can do, is establish an association between the, the factors that are being studied and the consequences. So in this case, all the study can say is that there looks to be a strong association supported by statistical models between high intakes of ultra-processed foods and uh, someone having a cardiovascular event down the road. So the study is not going to explain why ultra-processed foods are giving this result. Uh, they just simply are saying, hey, you know, it looks like if you eat a lot of these types of foods, your risk of getting cardiovascular disease is going to rise up, and the more you eat, the more risk uh, you're going to have. All right, I kind of summarize uh, other biases that uh, I kind of hinted upon earlier. Uh, as is usually the case, in volunteer-based cohorts, uh, more of the participants will be younger, more of them will be women, as I said. There'll be more that are high socio-professional, or I should say there, there'll be more people with high socio-professional and educational levels 
than the general population. They're less likely to smoke uh, or to be overweight or obese. For example, the people in the study were had a BMI uh, or oh, no, I shouldn't say that. More people there were people, <laughs> let me start over again. We're talking about being overweight or obese. So in the study, the participants were 28 to 29 percent uh, obese versus the general uh, population of 54. And uh, less people were likely to have type 2 diabetes. It was 1.6% of the people in the study versus 6% of the general populations. Now, if you think about it, these factors could have resulted in lower incidences of CVD. So if more people were young, didn't smoke, weren't overweight, didn't have type 2 diabetes in the study, and they came up with these figures of 11, 12, what was it, 13, 12, and 11 percent risks of cardiovascular and stroke possibilities. Um, in reality, if the researchers were able to look at the general population who contained more people who smoked or were overweight or had diabetes, then these risks would have been even higher. All right, so that's, that's it for the study. I want to wrap it up here. If you look at the emerging scientific literature on the prevalence of UPS in the food supply, the evidence is mounting that these types of foods create significant health impacts, which not only adversely affect individuals, but also adversely affect society in terms of health care costs, insurance rates, hospitalizations, and long-term care. I think we are at the beginning of a 21st century health crisis such that, like climate change, if we don't start doing something about it now, it will lead to much suffering and economic catastrophe. As mentioned earlier, the data from the Nutrinet Sante study revealed other aspects of health ramifications such as cancer rates and overall mortality as, as regards overconsumption of UPS. If you're interested in learning more, just Google Nutrinet Sante to find articles from this study. Well, food eaters, that's it for today's episode. I hope you got something out of it. Please continue to listen to the show and share it with friends, relatives, associates, and strangers. All the episodes can be found at the Food Labels Revealed hosting website at podbean.com. You can also find some FLR-related news at my Facebook page, Food Labels Revealed Podcast. Until next month, remember this. Eat foods mainly from natural plants, not from manufacturing plants. <laughs>